at Film Church, a podcast about the cinematic arts. Come along with me and my guest as we sink our fingers into the rotten flesh of a movie. So this episode, I'll be covering the forthcoming film festival, Panic Fest 2021. Uh, Movie Magic Minutes uh, will be about Alice Guy Boucher and Film School Fact, Force Perspective. And tonight I have a friend of mine from film school here with me tonight, Jesse Gee. Jesse. Hello. How you doing? How are you? Excellent. It's been a long time, my friend. Indeed. Uh, was it the Santa Fe... College of Santa Fe reunion. Oh, that we had face to face. That was yeah, probably six or seven years ago. Yeah, I think that's when I got your mom's phone number. <laughs> well, it happens. You know, <laughs> I wonder why I've done that. I think I think you were, I don't know, in transition or something. Yeah, maybe my phone was messed up or lost, and I gave you my mom's something. number to get a hold of me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I think we were we were just trying to plan on like meeting up while I was in Santa Fe, and I think that's why you gave me that number. That's funny. She yeah, she texted me, Jess, some <laughs> friend of yours got a hold of me. <laughs> Something about a podcast. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Right on. Cool. Well, what have you been up to? Like, I I really don't know too much about your business. If you care to share anything, what sure. what have you been up to, man? Well, today I painted my car. And nice. the day before that, I was working on uh, prepping it for paint. But if you mean like my job, I just finished up um, working on this TV show, The Orville. Oh, yeah. Um, and before that, I was making costumes for this stage show in China. And so what I do for a living is specialty costumes and special effects well i guess you would say creature costumes and occasionally makeup but most of what i do i guess for the last six years has just been specialty costumes such as a lot of super superhero sci-fi all the high-end like crazy custom stuff i work in various shops out here doing that very cool like for Orville, we I was just working on the robot costume for the robot character in that show. Um, right I'm about to start on another big movie I can't talk about. I've done a lot of stuff like for Marvel and um, big movies like uh, Pacific Rim and Underwater. Cool. Costume assembly mostly. Right on. Yeah. I bet that's a lot of fun. But I that, I come from a background in special effects makeup, and so I've I've studied a lot of these old special effects films like The Gate, and I've had especially older mentors uh, will get really excited to talk about like how they did certain things in certain movies that they just don't do anymore, um, because it's all yeah it's right on on computers now. Yeah, which is very unfortunate. 
I want to see a revival of these old things, you know. There's sex. something fun about it, and in some cases, if you do it right, it it feels different when you watch it. I'm and I'm not opposed to CGI in general because it, there's so many things done now that couldn't have been done before um, in a believable way. But right from the beginning of CGI, they went overboard and too far, and they've never stopped. There's not many movies where they dial it back and it feels right and it feels real. Every movie that's a heavy CGI movie, you go, oh, that's okay. Well, that was a crazy shot. Oh, that oh, that's too much. Oh, this character should have been a person in a makeup. Right, yeah. One-upsmanship one or something like that. Yeah. They keep pushing the limits, yeah. We're uh, kind of rivals with them, actually. Um, because oh, yeah. everybody's just still trying to fight for work and still trying to like get a job, keep a job, compete for work. And a lot of these like CGI special effects houses will try to get jobs and we're trying to do it with practical effects. They're trying to do it with digital effects and they, it's, it comes down to bidding, but there, there's certainly some snaky behavior. Sure. There's a lot of times where like we could make a full body suit and make it work really well if we are given the time and money, but you'll have CGI people like uh, telling movie producers that it looks bad and that what they will do would be better. And then often we'll do a hybrid where we'll create a suit and they'll take it to set and the plan is they'll fix it with CGI. But oftentimes there'll be like an effect supervisor for the CGI on set like whispering in the producer's ear, hey, see how shitty that looks? We can fix that. Don't worry, we'll fix it. <laughs> and then when they wow. get in post-production, sometimes they're like, you know what? We could just replace this whole thing. We could just cover it up with our own CGI suit and it'll look way better. And of course, we're never there to to offer the other opinion. Actually, no, I think it does look better as a practical suit. Right, and you won't really know until you see it on film. It's frustrating. On the screen, yeah. And we get lame. Superstars don't want to wear the suits sometimes. Whenever they do, and they're enthusiastic about the suit, we're really we're so pleased about it. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I mean, they can. I'm sure it's kind of warm, but exactly. I was going to say, yeah, it depends on the suit and what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. Lots, lots of latex can get pretty hot. I don't know how how much that's being used. Yeah. Yeah. I wore a suit. They're still widely. Um, the TV show Westworld. I wore a rubber suit uh, in the background uh, two years ago, I guess. And uh, it, it really is like kind of a torture, especially when you're in it for like 14 hours. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's like being in a sauna and a like straight jacket. <laughs> I think extreme weight loss. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about it later. But I was reading about the the monster suits for the gate, and they sound even worse. What they did, yeah, this, this movie we don't do anymore. It's a, like a big no no. <laughs> yeah, it's like safety reasons. I'm sure. Yeah, it, it, yeah, right on. Yeah, we will get into it for sure. Cool. Well, um, I'm going to run through a few things if you don't mind, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll get your opinion. So, first of all, I'm about to declare this festival awesome. 
So there's a forthcoming film fest, uh, the Panic Fest, which takes place in Kansas City, Missouri, at the historic Screenland Armor Theater. Uh, the fest typically showcases over 60 thriller, horror, and sci-fi films. Uh, some of the past debut films there that they list on their website were Elijah Wood's Maniac remake and What We Do in the Shadows. So the fest kicks off uh, April 8th and runs through the 18th. And you can pick up a $135 virtual pass this year for all the films and the panels. So it's a unique time. As I've been uh, telling y'all, you can check out a lot of cool film festivals virtually this year. So check it out while it's happening. Hopefully it'll continue in the future, but we don't really know. So go to uh, panicfilmfest.com and you can pick up tickets there. Uh, right now, they haven't really announced a lot of the movies that are going to be showing, uh, but uh, I bet you real quick they will have those up and running. So go check it out. Have you ever uh, have you heard of that one? No. Fest? It's a good name. Makes you feel yeah. nervous. Right. <laughs> but yeah. I like it. And uh, any kind of a horror or sci-fi or thriller or whatever, uh, those are usually fun screenings. I don't know how it would be at home, but at least you'd get to see a new movie that nobody's seen before, and that could be fun. Yeah, and a lot of times, some of these movies never make it into distribution, so you might see it and never see it again. That's true. Yeah, um, it, I I did distribution for a while, and uh, I, I saw I went to you know a few film festivals, and there's some movies that I loved, and you just can't find them now. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, what? It's crazy. It's a crazy film world. There's a lot of weird uh, old movies that are actually popular and were big hits a long time ago, but they got lost in like legal disputes over who owns the rights and the people who own them don't care. So there's a bunch of movies that are just, you can't get them anywhere uh, like from our childhood. And it's very frustrating. It is. Release them or fix the contract or whatever. It would be nice if um, more of that was going on because there's so many movies that are just sitting in archives. It's nuts. Mm-hmm. All right. So I do this other little bit here, a um, little, bit, little bit of history, and uh, I'll, I'm going to read this to you if you don't mind. You ready? I'll allow it. <laughs> movie Alice Gee. Blaché, or Alice Aida Antoinette Guy, she is regarded as the first woman to direct films. From 1896 to 1906, she may have been the only female filmmaker at that time. She was also a special effects pioneer. She directed nearly a thousand films, mostly shorts, but also 22 feature films in a 26 year period. Wow. And yeah, isn't that crazy? I mean, I mean, that was, that was the beginning of film history and, uh, shooting that many movies in that period of time. It's so epic. It's amazing to me. In, uh, 1891, Guy was needed by her family to go to work as her father had suddenly passed away. She trained as a stenographer and typist and began working in this field at a varnish factory. 
1894, Guy then moved over to work at Gaumont as stenographer slash typist at the Comptoir General de la Photographie, translated meaning the general counter of photography. When pitching herself for the position, she supposedly was told by Leon Gaumont, I fear, mademoiselle, that you may be too young. By which she replied, but sir, I'll get over that. <laughs> From there, she began working 12-hour days, six to seven days a week. <laughs> Guy, Guy Blachet and Leon Gamon attended a surprise Lumiere event in 1895. It was the very first demo of a film projector. They screened a film reel called Workers Leaving the Lumiere Factory, a I've simple film of workmen leaving a factory. That's great. That was one that, that they showed in, in film school often, you know? Yeah. And it's cool. Yeah. It's like went the very first like uh, practical movie. It was very simple, right? Um, so she, she was pretty uninspired by that subject, but <laughs> she was inspired to start uh, trying to tell fictional stories using this new medium called film. She asked Gaumont for permission to make her own film, and he granted it as long as the mail continued to get processed. <laughs> <laughs> Guy Bachet's first film, and quite possibly the world's first narrative film, was titled La Fille au Chou, The Cabbage Fairy, in oh, 1896. That's what that was. I guess I'm not good at French. I'm not, I, the only reason I know is because I looked up the pronunciations. I thought it was <laughs> foot of the day. <laughs> or was it it's, soup? It's still, it's still pretty crazy. What did you say uh, it was? The fairy? The cabbage fairy. Oh, yeah. So Typical it's basically, fairy. I don't know if, if you've seen this, but it's, uh, it's a woman plucking real babies out of like painted cabbages oh like picking them up by a, a leg <laughs> like oh it's a real baby that <laughs> it's crazy so from uh, 1896 to 1906 Guy Blachet was almost head of production and is generally considered to be the first filmmaker to systematically develop narrative filmmaking her earlier films share many characteristics and themes from her contemporary competitors such as the Lumières and Méliès she explored dance and travel films, often combining the two, such as Le Bolero, uh, performed by Miss Sarah Hitt in 1905, and Tango in 1905. Many of Guy Blachet's early dance films were popular in music hall attractions, and uh, she used, um, what is it, uh, cine, what is it called? It? Kinetoscope or cinemascope? Not cinemascope. That's not. That's the machine device to like loop, and you look into that it. one. Yeah. Well, this one. So she actually recorded sound. She was like what? using one of Gamon's uh, new like. Uh, man, I should have put this in my notes, but um, this sound recording device they recorded on wax discs. Oh. And so they did. They did a pre-record, and then they'd play it back, and then film the singer singing along to the record, like a real. Music and then they take, video. yeah, it's basically the first music videos that she made. Nineteen oh five. That's crazy. Uh, then in nineteen oh six, she made the Life of Christ, 
and it was like a very big budget production she had to talk her way into. Uh, supposedly included 300 extras. She uh, used the illustrated Tissot Bible as reference material for the film, which featured 25 episodes and was her largest production at Gaumont to date. In addition to this, she was one of the pioneers in the use of audio recordings, again, in conjunction with the images on screen. Oh, I did write it down. I thought I did. Gamo's chronophone. That's what it was called, the chronophone. So it used vertical cut discs that were synchronized to the film. Uh, She employed some of the first special effects as well, including some double exposure, masking techniques, and running a film backwards. During her tenure at Gamo, Guy Blachet hired and trained Louis Fouillard, Fouillard and uh, Atinien Arnaud as writer and directors. And they were, I don't, I don't really remember those names, but they were big um, in the silent era in, in France. Uh, in 1907, Alice Guy married Herbert Blachet, who was soon appointed the production manager of Gaumont's operations in the United States. And after working with her husband uh, for Gaumont in the U.S., the two struck out on their own in 1910, partnering with George A. Maggie in the formation of the Solax Company, the largest pre-Hollywood studio in America. This is a lot of stuff I don't remember learning about in school. Well, guess what? We didn't. This was not taught until very, 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 very recently. Is that because of suppression or because this is information that was lost for a long time? A little bit of both. Um, it was suppressed in the sense that film historians didn't couldn't find some information, or if they did have it, they didn't believe it. Um, mm. So, yeah, there's, there's some other information here I'm going to share in a moment here. So she went on to make many, many films uh, and was also completely written out of film history in the early days of cinema mm-hmm. historiography. So, which leads me to my film to check out. Uh, you should go and watch uh, Be Natural. It's a documentary and it's Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet by Pamela B. Green. Uh, you'll learn everything that you ever wanted to and beyond uh, about Alice um, she truly, I feel like she really helped shape the, the cinema as a storytelling device, you know, because one, she, she was one of the first to really use it that way. And she passed it down to other men that eventually took over, which uh, it's a sad story. been doing a lot of research uh, for Women's History Month, and um, she was a big name that came up. And so I would definitely wanted to mention her, especially since she was a, a pioneer in special effects. And since we're going to be talking about special effects tonight, yeah, her name needed to be mentioned. I wonder how many of those thousands of films still exist or have been seen by any modern folks. Or did yeah. they all get it, burned up like so many others? Yeah, a lot of them were on nitrate. So I think a lot were lost. There, I think the film archives around the world um the the documentary touches on this they 
uh, go out and try to find some, and they did. And the, the document, uh, the documentary filmmaker also found a lot of notes and letters uh, from extended family that had no idea that she was this amazing filmmaker. Wow. So yeah, it's a really cool documentary. Um, you should check it out. That's a great story, and I will check it out. Yay! Yeah. Alice. Do it. Live on, Alice. <laughs> it's on uh, Canopy, if you do the library thing. Okay. You ever you ever sign up for the library movies? I tried uh, Hoopla, which is oh, yeah. an app that allows you to watch movies that are you know owned by the library but uh what's canopy all about is it that there's similar service like hoopla uh, i think it, you just have to belong to a library that uses the service in order to get access do you know so if I the library of congress has stuff accessible online yet boy i don't i don't think so i i think um i heard they were starting to do audio recordings but uh, really, because there's thousands of like tapes at the Library of Congress, like documentary where they just went out into New York in the 40s and talked to people. Tell me who you are. What's your job? What are you doing? And I've heard a few of them. They're really neat. But uh, I wish that there was funding for them to just basically digitize everything they have so people could look at it from afar. That'd be cool. I agree. That would be amazing. I bet they and films in there. They do. They do. Yeah. This I uh, I watched this documentary recently, and they show some of the historians and the uh, archivists going into these huge aisles. It's like where they store the Ark of the Covenant, you know, and they're <laughs> pulling out these crazy boxes filled with film reels from. Oh wow. 1910 and stuff like that that's great so it's out there it's out there and it's just like hidden away and nobody gets to see it it's probably very fragile like you'd have to get it out and scan it immediately so it yeah just deteriorate it turns into dust i imagine so i think the actual like particles fall off the emulsion at a certain point yeah i think so i think you're right um Although I believe that if it's nitrate, it does last longer, but it's very, very, very flammable. Yeah. So it has to be like stored properly. Um, yeah. All right. So I've got one more bit and then we can get into the movie. This one is short. I'm going to, I'm going to ask for your help on this one a little, but, uh, film school fact forced perspective. Most of us have seen an example of forced perspective in movies, but you may not have realized it. Forced perspective is a technique used in film and photography to trick the viewer into thinking they are seeing the impossible. Have you ever held up your fingers to the sky and imagined you were pinching the moon between your fingertips? The most popular example of forced perspective comes from Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, where hobbits and dwarves are seen alongside average humans. The trickery is created by a practical optical effect using people, props, and other set pieces arranged at different distances to the camera. Smaller objects are placed further away from the lens, while larger objects are placed closer. 
The camera angle helps to complete the effect as do parts of the scene like furniture or flooring. Lighting the scene plays a crucial role as subjects in the distance require more light to make them appear at the same distance as the subjects closer to the camera. More light can also mean a lot more heat. The end result enables our imaginations to see tiny leprechauns or evil demonic minions ready to bite your neck. Uh, this one, Force Perspective, is something that this movie really takes advantage of, and we'll talk a lot more about that coming up. But um, was there anything that I, I missed in, in, uh, in this technique that you might want to add, Jesse? Well, um, what's interesting is that you can do things with forced perspective and um, a lot of different ways. And what this movie especially is doing a lot of is making something that's real life, normal size, look smaller. Um, right. Typically what in the past was the most common thing was you would make a miniature look large. Um, and sometimes like there's a thing called the, the hanging miniature, I believe it's called where they'll place something in front of the camera, like a castle say, and it's on like a, an invisible rod and they line up the shot. So it looks like the castle is up on top of the hill, but really it's right in front of the camera. And, and what this movie does a lot more of is putting an entire giant oversized set around some actors so that they look tiny and then putting other actors right up in front of the camera so they look normal size so it's almost it's still forced perspective but it's kind of used in a way that's the opposite of a lot of film history i've heard it referred to as trick perspective as well have you heard that is there a difference there no i don't think so um, okay, I think that might be an older way of talking yeah, about I, it. Yeah, I, I imagine. Sometimes. I know that when I was a kid, I don't recall how old I was when I realized that when you were watching a movie, it wasn't just a real spaceship. And I don't think right. I even understood it. You never, you don't understand that there's a camera at first. And then when you realize, oh, they have, this is a movie they're making. And then you go through a period where you're like, well, they must have filmed a spaceship. And then you finally ask, wait a second, is there real spaceships? How did they do that? And my dad would always just say, well, Jess, that's trick photography. <laughs> he never had any explanation beyond that. Right. <laughs> uh, later, I, I they started to show, like, how did they do that? Featurettes on TV. And that's where I really discovered oh, my yeah. passion for all of this. Right. Yeah, that's some Trick good stuff. Photography, that was an all-encompassing word that really covered a lot of ground a long time ago. <laughs> Movie magic. Yes. Which was a terrific TV show. Witchcraft. <laughs> yes. Most definitely. Cool. All right. Well, so this is we're going to be talking about The Gate from 1987. It was filmed through, let's see, storyboarded in 1985-ish. And then shot April, May, June of 1986, from what I gather. Uh, directed by uh, Tibor Takish. And um, written by Michael Nankin. 
and then the uh, special effects designer and supervisor, I think he was technically credited as Randy Cook, but he likes to go by Randall William Cook currently. And uh, yeah, we'll talk about his his team too. A lot of lot of names here that made this movie possible. Um, pretty amazing. So the I like to kind of talk about too the the genre or maybe like subgenre of this movie. Where where would you place this in that category? I mean the the main thing I would call it is a monster movie, but it's also got the um, religious angle and a little, uh, little bit yeah. It's one of the. Uh, I don't know if you would call this a subgenre, but it's sort of like a teenagers left to fend for themselves um, type of movie. Uh, there was a lot more of these in the old days where it's like, mom and dad are going out of town. Right. You kids stay right. out of trouble. Right. <laughs> you don't see a lot of those anymore. Then, right, exactly. Yeah, I feel like it's like um, a kid's horror movie. Yeah. Yeah, the filmmakers talk a lot about that too. You know, that the script was originally written more for adults, and it had a lot more uh, crazy gore and destruction, and probably death. But um, it was rewritten for, I guess, I mean, it was rewritten for kids in the sense that it's about kids, and it's like a safe for teenage kids, I would say, story. Yeah. I think they say 12, but um, 10, 10 to 12, I think that's kind of pushing the limits uh, for for some kiddos yeah. <laughs> being, being a dad now, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. What I like about about the, the kids in this movie is they're all real teenagers. And yeah. like even the older boy who is briefly in it, he does seem like he's 16 or 17. And it's not... It's not like uh, so many of the early 80s horror movies where the teenagers look like they're 25 and it's all sex. And, it, you know, I don't I don't mind those movies, but this was it was kind of nice that the kids in this were not like depraved. They were pretty innocent and they were just being harassed and tortured and terrified by these demons. Right. And, uh, it felt more like how my childhood would have been in that situation. It felt more like a modern day fairy tale. Yeah, sure. A horrific fairy tale. Yeah. Which, you know, like Brothers Grimm style. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, it's a great, cool story. It could have been called Don't Open the Gate. (laughs) The Gate. I remember seeing the video box when I was a kid. It's a very good cover. I, I don't know. I really liked the angle of this movie, and uh, I would I would call it like a child's uh, fairy tale horror, something mm-hmm. along those lines. Okay. Well, um, in the, in the past, uh, you know, I've, I've said okay, okay, we're gonna start ruining the movie. So if you haven't seen it, stop listening and go watch it. Um, I, I feel like we should kind of go over some stuff um like in terms of just scenes at the beginning but sure um i don't know how how do you how do you want to discuss this because i've 
typically in the past have just gone scene by scene. I'm kind of tired of doing it that way, to be honest. I'd like to really get into the special effects of this film. Okay. Well, what if instead of scene by scene, we go shot by shot? <laughs> Ready? First yeah. shot. Black. Long shot. Letter across <laughs> the screen. I don't remember what they said, but this goes on for several <laughs> minutes. Say the name of the movie and a bunch of the people that are in the movie and some of the people that worked on it. <laughs> Next shot. The backyard. <laughs> this is a normal house with a normal backyard. Actually, I, I read that they shot this in a neighborhood that was being built. And so the backyard looked out onto a bunch of construction sites. So they had to build that wooden fence in the backyard just to hide all the yeah. construction equipment. Yeah. Yeah. I think I saw that somewhere too. It's interesting how they, you know, make it look like it's one complete place. Yeah. And like the, the tree too. Uh, they talk about the tree getting hit by lightning, which is pretty close to the beginning there. He's having that, that dream sequence. Yeah, he's having a that, bad dream, which actually reminded me of a situation I got into as a kid, but we'll talk about that. Well, maybe now's the time to talk about it. I was at my sure. grandparents' house. They had a big old house, like kind of in the woods. And I grew up in a tiny little house. So being in this big house where you could actually like run in circles around areas, you know, it, the house I grew up in, you could stick your head out your bedroom and you look down the hall and then you look the other way and you could see almost the entire house. <laughs> oh, sure. So yeah. To have that. two stories and an attic and like places to hide. It, it kind of, especially at night in the dark felt scary to us. And one time oh, when sure. I was older, I think I might've even been in high school. There was this moment where a bunch of people were in the house and a whole other family was there, and that family was going to leave. So everyone was like, come on, let's let's see them off. We're going to go say goodbye. And I was doing something, so I didn't tag along for like another couple minutes. And then I put my stuff down, and I went to the big front door, and I couldn't get it open. It was locked somehow, and I was knocking on the door. I put my head against one of the little window on the side of the door. I couldn't hear anything out there. I couldn't, it wasn't like, it was like frosted glass or whatever. I couldn't see anything. And I thought for sure, it, it, I would hear them right on the other side of the door if they were there. So I thought, oh, maybe they went out the other door. And I went out the other door and it was just pitch black and silent in the middle of nowhere. And I had a complete freak out. I thought I had I jumped into another dimension by myself. The house was dark. I was yelling for people. Nobody heard me. And I just like crumbled into a corner and was crying. And then finally they came back in and <laughs> found me. And I was like, "Where? what happened? Where'd everybody go? I couldn't open the door. <laughs> <laughs> but when I saw this scene in the gate, it reminded me of waking up in the house alone you can't find anybody and you go out and everything feels weird. There's like dinner sitting on the table. And then he's like, it's like I don't know why, but I'm going in my tree house. <laughs> and then it fell down. But yeah, then did, so up, it really was down and the construction. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. Up. 
that was weird. So they didn't really explain anything about that. It just kind of happened. So it's like the dream world suddenly crosses over into the real world. Well, as kind of felt like opening, that kind of thing can happen. I suppose so. I suppose so. I guess are we to believe that the lightning and the tree falling opened the hole just by chance? Or were the demons trying to make this happen for a long time and then finally it did? Right. Can they make lightning strike? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I guess uh, it didn't really start until they cracked open the the geode in a little bit, here, right. right? Well, we so, find yeah, out tree... later in the movie that this kid next door has got this heavy metal album that says some of the magic words on it. So I wouldn't be surprised if he had been playing that and that got the demon's attention to come to Oh, yeah. In the first place, that's a. I like that. I like that theory. That that would make sense because, as they say later too, uh, that that band, Sacrifix, Sacrifix, yeah. is that what it was? Mm-hmm. They died in a plane crash after finishing that first album, their only album. Right. The Dark Book. <laughs> dark Book. And what a cool album to include an entire satanic book. Yeah, I mean, they 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 had all the instructions. Had all the instructions. There's (laughs) a special effects scene. I don't think it's the first one, but it's a little bit later when they go back out to the hole in the ground. It seems to be collapsing constantly. Yeah. Outward. Yeah. And you can see the motion under the earth, and it it made me think they must have dug a much bigger hole and built like compartments under the ground where people could get in there and like push on plastic or something or or they had some like fabric covered in dirt because it, it was moving as if it was being puppeteered and it's pretty neat i'm yeah i'm glad you mentioned that because i noticed that too um i thought that was a really cool effect really subtle but yeah they would have had to spend hours you know probably getting a backhoe to dig extra holes and then to make like what a fake hole that was like the one and then yeah finagle the the edges of it that was a cool scene yeah and that that hole was was really highly um designed it there's and i think they had they went into the studio for a lot of the the big effects stuff right yeah but yeah we'll get more into that in a bit uh so they the tree falls over and he, he wakes up from his dream and it, it is over and that's when he finds the first geode and apparently that was a real geode the the filmmakers had said that they actually got one real geode and then they manufactured the giant geode that gets dug up that's when terry comes over and he's like mm-hmm. yeah we can make a lot of money on this stuff yeah and that's what convinces him to start digging is that right I think so, and they find the big one, and Terry's just over the moon about it, right? And he's, and then the moths start popping out of the hole. Oh, they! Right? Yes. I think he, uh, his foot falls through the hole, and like a bunch of gas and moths come out of it. That's right, and that's how you know things are getting bad because moths aren't supposed to live down there underground. So right. these are. Demon moths, probably. 
<laughs> well, and he sure. captures some of them in a jar. They're certainly attracted to this geode because they start hitting the windows pretty hard. There's a good yeah. effects silhouette of the moths against the uh, wall there. It looks like a Stan Brakich film. <laughs> That's right. Yes. What was that one called? Moth, Moth moths Light. on film. Moth light. Yeah, yeah. that sounds right. I, I did see that one. Yep. So then they, cinema. they crack open this geode and there's a pretty neat effect of it glowing inside with a bunch of lights. It's very 80s. It doesn't seem right. to phase the kids at all. They say, well, that must be normal when you crack open a crystal. There's lights and glowing. Right. Well, and, and this was after uh, parents leave and, they, and the parents say, no, no parties. And you cut right to the next scene of a big party Bingo. going on. Party. <laughs> All the girls got their bangs hairsprayed to the sky. There's a lot of colors. I was telling my girlfriend, you can tell this is 1987 by the clothing. Right. Oh, They're yeah. Big time. Shift away from like the cool and the goth and the new wave into the like flashy colors and patterns and it triangles and by the bell yeah y yes yeah yeah and the bangs lots of hairspray perms yeah and these kids all look like kids which is cool and the girl of course is cleaning up because she's actually a good kid and she's not a party kid and she regrets having this party but then the right. first bad stuff happens i thought it was a very un 80s movie transition where the party winds down instead of getting crazier, they light candles and everybody gets quiet and they're going to do a levitation. And there's a girl who knows all about levitation and I right. recognize her from something else. I don't know what, but they, they do oh, the yeah? feather stiff as a board type of thing. Did you ever do that in real life? No, but I've, I've heard of it many times. I've tried it a few times and one time it worked, but it really only works if you have like 10 people around somebody lightweight. Sure. Yeah. The the com combined effort. Yeah. If you try it on like an adult with four people, it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's kind of like the Ouija board. You got to have enough people. Otherwise, yeah. It's not enough energy. kind of freak me out because they really... They really are moving if you like everybody who's ever done a Ouija board has lifted their fingers up off of it as it's moving just to make sure they're not doing it and it still moves. Right. Yeah, they're freaky. Yeah. Freaky. Yeah. One time as a kid we had like an hour long conversation with a spirit named Tommy who was living in my friend's house and we you know, as we were young enough kids where we're just like this is what Ouija boards do. You can talk to ghosts. Right. It's real. <laughs> well, yeah. None of us in that group of kids were the kind of people who are like, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to trick everybody and I'm going to move it. It wasn't like that. It really, yeah. it really yeah. felt like it was happening. I've been there. Yeah. I've definitely messed around with that stuff. I, I think maybe in college too, was when the, the most, somebody brought one over to the house or something <laughs> freaking out that's fun it's good times good times with the ouija board yeah so they uh they levitate so they, the kid they levitate the kid 
and and that was something else that was mentioned in the the album right yeah more proof that that they're opening the gate yeah and he hits the ceiling he breaks the light and he cries and he gets embarrassed and he goes up to his room and the kids are immediately like it's okay if you're embarrassed one time i was embarrassed <laughs> and nobody's like losing their minds that they actually levitated somebody except the little right. kid he's like can we call mom and dad i just floated to the ceiling why don't you think it's weird <laughs> yeah they just thought it was an illusion like well who's putting on this illusion his who's, his sister's how, like i got it under control don't call mom and dad i'm proving myself to be an adult this weekend who cares if you levitated <laughs> <laughs> Typical kid stuff, right? Yeah. I then I did this think is, that was gonna bite them in the ass throughout the the movie, but eventually they do try to use the phone to call the parents and the phone like melts into the wall, which was another neat effect. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff once things really start getting into the effects. There when they crack open the the giant geode, that and then that smoke comes out and it's all lit up inside. The uh I listened to the commentary and they were talking about how they did that a bit. Have you heard of smoke cookies? That sounds familiar, but no, tell us about it. Well, he, he said that that's what they use to get the smoke and it's some kind of like chemical mixture that um, they just kind of put into whatever. And they said they use them a lot in this. So if you need like a small practical effect for smoke, they just call them cookies. And it's, I don't know what the mixture is, but he said that, if they wanted to get different colors and whatnot, they would add their own chemicals, which oh, cool. nobody would do anymore, I guess, because it might be a little dangerous. Well, there but, used to um, be stuff that was called AB smoke, and it was just two chemicals that could be uh, mixed together, and it would turn into smoke. And I imagine cookies is that they've turned it into some sort of like powder or putty that you can just hold like a brick and then as soon as you want it to smoke, you'd squish it up and chuck it in a corner or something. Could be something okay, like that. Yeah. AB smoke was used sometimes for like, you know, like gunshots against a, a wall and you needed like a little poof of smoke. Gotcha. Well, I wonder if these were like a bigger, almost like a smoke bomb with a, yeah. some kind of trigger, maybe a fuse. Yeah, I don't know how, how would they normally light off a smoke effect if if they needed to. I, I can't imagine there would be a lot of fire involved. Well, yeah, I mean, normally it's either like a smoke machine, right, and then you can pump it through tubes, sort of, or the or it would be like you know burning something explosive. Well, here's some homework. Like this electric squib, right? Yeah, and a lot of squibs were used for the, the flame effects in this, or explosions. Uh, but the smoke cookie, I I couldn't find a lot of information on. So I have something else to research. And yeah, I can't I ask, can't ask your buddies. on that, except that the AB smoke is probably the same kind of chemicals. Yeah. They've probably. turned it into some sort of solid. Cool. I'd love to see a smoke cookie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, well, you, so then you can um, chew up a freeze-dried cookie and steam will shoot out of your mouth like a dragon. That's a real thing <laughs> with, you can do. Dry dried ice? Like I like the like uh they'll 
they'll put food into liquid nitrogen and super freeze it, and then you can put it in your mouth and it it heats up so fast that steam will shoot out of your mouth like a dragon. Nice. <laughs> Very interesting. That's cool. That, there's no pain involved, is there? Well, we tried it in my high school chemistry class with crackers, and it wasn't really getting the job done. So we did a banana, and then we smashed the banana, and then all the kids dared me to put it in my mouth. And as soon as I got it to my lips, before I got it in my mouth, it froze to my lip and got stuck on my lip. (laughs) And it was hurting. So I was kind of like, ah! And my teacher, who was a real character, she grabbed me by the arm and yanked me over to the emergency shower in the chemistry lab and was about to try to put me under a full shower at school. (laughs) I said, no, not the shower. So he knocked a whole bunch of beakers off of this table to put my head under the sink. And and she doused my face in running water. And we got the banana off. And then she made me go. She said to go see the nurse, but I just went to my class. It was kind of, it felt like a sunburn. Yeah. Yeah. It's a topical burn, right? Yeah. Good times. Was that was that a dare? I mean, it was kind of like, who's going to do it? You do it. Somebody do it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'll do it. And I didn't even get it in my mouth. I just froze it to my lips. It's probably better that it was on your lips instead of on your tongue. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it might have might have been a little more painful. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But speaking of steam coming out of your mouth, there's an effect later in this movie where smoke comes out of somebody's mouth and they just went real lo-fi and used a cigarette. Oh yeah. That was the, <laughs> the work, the workman, right? Yeah. So let's see. We, we were at the part where they, the kids actually were talking. They, they spoke the words. I think it was Aka Kuto Ala Neta. Is that right? Oh, well, what happens was when the geode explodes, it rolls over onto one of those like uh, drawing pads with the little cellophane against the black plastic where you would you would draw on it and it would stick to the surface behind it. And it, right. I felt like it was either the explosion or just the rolling of the rock onto that pad imprints the words and they they just read them out loud. Like, like some yeah. kind of idiot. <laughs> like I just did. And that's also super <laughs> clever of the geode. I know what I'll do. I need these words to say, to be said. I'll put them on something and somebody will read them. Exactly. And they did. They, and they did. did it. And that was the first step. That's right. That's we right. learned from the heavy metal neighbor kid, Terry, that later on that there are several steps in order to open the gate completely. And this is the first one, saying the words. Right. He's listening to the album and and singing along, right? Yeah. But uh, we've got, before all that happens, the sleepover, Glenn is all freaked out. Glenn, Glenn is um, Dorf, Stephen Dorf. Yes. A, he's tw- isn't he like 12 in this movie? I think he's 12 years old, if I remember yeah. right. Or, I mean, he looks like he's eight. Yeah, he but, does. Uh, I listened to his interview with Mark Marin because you know he became a, a very well-known actor 
as an adult. And he talks about getting into acting like in his young adulthood. And he doesn't really mention his childhood, except like very briefly, he says, oh, yeah, I was in a couple of things when I was a, a kid. There was this some movie called The Gate or something. I don't really remember. It was almost like either he didn't remember or or he didn't want to talk about this movie. And I, I was a little disappointed because when I saw that he was going to be on Mark Marin, I was like, oh, I hope he talks all about the gate. No, he didn't, <laughs> didn't want to talk about the gate at all. Yeah, I couldn't find any interviews on YouTube with him talking about it very much. He briefly mentions it and he changes the subject and talks about uh, being on, I think it was Different Strokes or something or all all the other he made some cameos in the TV series of like with Gary Coleman and yeah and stuff like that he wouldn't he wouldn't talk about the gate I don't know maybe something he it's a stupid movie but it's but if he's so then he's wrong big time wrong it's, a, it's time. definitely like it has a cult following movie yeah 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 this was my first time seeing it so it's uh man it was fun it was a fun watch. I can't get my wife to to watch any kind of horror movies with me, so I had to watch it all by myself, which made it extra extra scary. Well, maybe you need to just not tell her that some of these are horror and just say it's science fiction. Right. <laughs> she would hate me. Yeah. But uh, it was, uh, the first, like, was it 30 or 40 minutes? There's, like, nothing really going on. Well, it's Until... got that sort of 1970s style. It reminded me a little bit of, well, I guess not really The Exorcist, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of older movies like that, in the, especially in the 70s, where they're like, we're gonna, we're gonna hint at things first, and it's gonna be a slower build mm-hmm. for the monsters showing up. Right. What happens first? Does the dog die first? So they they have that sleepover because he's all freaked out about levitating levitating right and yeah he wakes up in the middle of the night and there's like moths hitting the window right yeah yeah and then the bug zapper is going crazy outside and which is another crazy effect terry wakes up and sees his mom dead mom's ghost that's right dances with her and then it turns into the dog and the dog's dead he's like hugging he thinks he's hugging his mom and, and all Glenn of a sudden, wants it's the dog. To call his parents again, and his sister Al says, "No, it's just a dead dog. We'll bury him tomorrow." Stop! <laughs> stop freaking out about everything. Jeez, you floated to the ceiling, and the dog died. Big whoop. <laughs> yeah, she's very blasé about the whole thing. She's trying to be an adult. She even looks in the mirror as she's wearing her kids' pajamas, and she's like. Oh man, I still look like a kid. <laughs> You're always wanting to grow up way faster than they can. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. So she goes off to the mall, right? So this, this is the next day. Angus takes off, or not Angus. Angus is dead. Angus is the dog. Terry leaves, and he's like, "Yeah, I'll see you later." Right? That's what Glenn yeah. says. And his sister goes to the mall with the girls. And Glenn's at home. Is this when he volunteers to take care of the dog, the dead dog? So that they go to the mall without worrying about it? 
Yeah, that's uh, Eric. Eric is the the hunky boy that that wants uh, Al. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah, he's he's like volunteering, and he, was he go to the vet, and the vet's closed. Yeah, he does put some effort in, but then can't find a place to to deal with it, and he goes back to the house and goes in the backyard, and what does he see? But a big hole in the ground, and he yep. puts the dog in there, and he fills it up with dirt. Well, that's what they had already like put some kind of like wooden gate thing over the top of it, right? Well, they had Terry and Glenn put the uh, remains of the tree house. Right. But I thought it was a little silly that they put the section that had the door on it. (laughs) The the door could just be opened again. and. (laughs) But it had a lock. Well, (laughs) they had had a latch. And at some point, the latch opens with a special effect from the inside. Yeah. And that's how you know practical about to get real that's right but there was also another little key scene there uh where glenn's at home by himself and he digs under his bed to find the wrapped up gift and he opens yeah. it up and it's it's got a note to his sister al and it's a rocket that doesn't need any fuses it's just got yeah, the, it's like an electric battery launch power. system or something battery powered yeah. launch system so that's going back to what you were just saying, like the the build up. So you, you get these little key plot points kind of thrown at you. Because, you know, when you watch a lot of movies, you see something like that happens. He, he <laughs> opens up this gift and then just tosses it behind the bed. Yeah. And you're like, you that's know that that's going to be. Yeah, exactly. It's going to. But they also introduced that, that his sister is into rocketry and had been sort of mentoring him in rockets. And then he's not allowed to do it by himself because he he lit the roof on fire. Right. But then just when he's like getting excited for the oh the next big rocket we're gonna build, then Al's kind of like oh that's kid stuff. I want to go to the mall. <laughs> so he's really bummed out about his sister growing up and hanging out with these two sisters who are just the worst. Did he have two sisters? No, he, she hangs out with her friends who are two sisters, and the two right. little boys make fun of them all the time for being hideous, and there's a lot of tension between them. That's and right. one of them does her hair up in really extremely hairsprayed bangs. And that girl Very. later became the mom on the TV show The O.C. Oh, really? And she looks exactly <laughs> the same, except for the bangs are different. <laughs> Nice. But these girls come over for a sleepover. Okay, well, first the kids, they bring the the dark book over and they try to close the gate. And they uh, then they read from the Bible. uh, (laughs) And then Glenn, no, Terry falls into the hole. And this is where we get one of the really cool special effects shots. There's this crazy falling down the hole shot, which is very weird. But then when he lands, suddenly out of the tunnel, here comes these little demons that they call the minions in all the articles I read. Right. And that's that's what uh, Glenn was reading about as he was going to sleep. Yeah. Like right before he went to bed, right before all of this happened, he's got the the book from the album. What was it? What was the album called? The the dark book 
dark book which is uh sacrifix yes and and that's that's where they got all their instructions on uh how to close up the the gate they're gonna try to close the gate and then so when terry's down in this hole this little creature comes up and grabs his like foot and this is where we start to see the force perspective there's a really cool shot where I thought it was the kid's real legs and then the the demons were on the other side of the legs. But I think one of them comes right up and puts his hands over the shoe, mm-hmm. which means that the entire set of legs are gigantic prop legs. And there must be a transition ar- around the kid's shirt where his legs go out of frame and it lines right up with the jeans of the giant legs. Well, I think... I, I feel like one of it, the legs was real. Oh, that, and then the, the far leg was the fake leg. And it I know that perfect. they made a shoe. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's seamless. And they use this giant leg soon after because Terry kicks one of them or stomps them and, and, and stomps, goes yeah. running and trying to climb up the cliff or the rock face on the inside of this cave. And that's where they have a wonderful. It's a moving camera, which I must have been a motion control, where the they pan up. It's they either pan up or down on on the kid, and his his upper his upper body is trying to climb, and then when they get down to the legs, it transitions to a giant fake leg, and all of these minions are grabbing onto him, and these minions are people in rubber costumes. Right. And these rubber costumes were made by Craig Reardon, who's a, a well-known name in the special effects makeups um, community. Uh, you don't hear his name quite as much anymore, but he used to do a lot of stuff in the 80s and 90s. And I was reading about these suits. This is what I was talking about earlier. Usually for a the monster suits. like this, we make them out of what's called foam latex. And... What you do is there's a liquid latex, especially formulated, and you put it in these big mixers, um, like a Sunbeam or a Hobart or a KitchenAid mixer, and it's very much like making meringue, like for a pie. You whip it and whip it and whip it up, and it's got it's got a chemical in it called foaming agent that foams it up, and there's another chemical that called gelling agent that you put in and what happens is you get this latex is whipped into a a foam and then you inject it into these giant molds of the sculpture that was originally done over a body form in clay molded the clay gets removed you put the body form inside the mold and then you have this empty space that represents the sculpture of the creature these giant syringes and they inject this foam latex into the mold. And uh, then it you have to do it within a certain amount of time because then it, it solidifies. Right. But then you have to carefully move it to an oven. And then it has to cook in the oven for hours in, in order for it to become like a, a sponge. And then these are carefully removed from the mold, carefully cut off of the body forms. And then they have to get 
trimmed and they have to have the seam covered and then they have to get zippers installed. And this is the kind of stuff I do. Uh, we install zippers, we install Velcro on the wrists or whatever, or it has to be flexible enough to put their wrist through. And then it gets painted. It's a lot of work. And then they're fairly fragile. They're prone to tearing and prone to shrinkage. And you can make a suit a lot faster if you use what's called polyfoam, which is short for polyurethane foam. And it's the same process. You have the, the core mold, which is the person's body, and then you have the outer mold, which is the sculpture. And you fill that empty space with this two-part liquid mixture, and it foams up inside there, and it just expands. So you'll, you might have a a bucket of foam that's you know the size of a kfc bucket and it'll fill halfway up the entire monster mm. uh, but the stuff is horrible against your bare skin it stinks the old stuff uh, would gas off uh cyanide um no oh, geez <laughs> uh that's it's hard good. to paint it's hard to maintain and Nowadays, even the softest stuff is not as soft and squishy and nicely skinning as as foam latex. So the fact that they made whatever twenty of these costumes out of polyfoam, and those actors had to wear them and crouch and roll around and and have their heads inside of a polyfoam head, the smell yeah. alone is just. I'm surprised they didn't have major issues. They don't do but, that anymore. Uh, yeah, they, they, there was a, a still from the set, and uh, they they were feeding oxygen through a tube into the mouth of one of for the actor in between oh, yeah. takes. Usually, what so. we do on a costume like that now is they have to they'll have something that opens up, even or even if it's just the mouth, and we have these high speed fans that just blow air in there like between takes, so they can cool off and get fresh air. But they can be really sweltering and hard to work in and hard to see out of. Yeah. I imagine yeah, these uh, had to only look out the mouth or maybe maybe the nostrils or something. Yeah. I think, so there was a one of the actors, like extras, that was in one of these suits said that they you could see through the eyes until it started getting foggy inside. Oh, yeah. And then all you could see was out of the mouth. And uh, he was explaining like how to get into the, these suits, and I guess because of the shrinkage, they had to kind of wiggle, like be like a contortionist in order to get into the arms and whatnot. And oh, I think yeah. for these ones, they they had different parts. They had like the torso section, so including the arms, and then they had the hands separate, and pants were separate, and the head was separate. Um, yeah, that's very and common, I, and what and they'll do like a a strap that goes from the crotch to the butt. So they'll have kind of like long johns with the legs and then the torso, the upper torso goes over that and clips usually a strap from the crotch up to the butt. And then there's usually a zipper up the back. Gotcha. Um, if they had to do to get into these without a zipper. That would really be difficult. Yeah. Usually I don't just get your legs on and then you sort of bend over into the arms and then you have to, sort of stand up 
into the arms and then it all sort of stretches over your body and then usually have two people helping you push your fist through the tight arms and then they have to zip up the back. It sounded like they didn't have any closures like that, like zippers or anything else. It sounded like they that were just one piece. Real, if they had to put it on like a shirt, that would yeah. have been really difficult because they don't stretch yeah. really enough for that. Right. And I, I think um, if I remember right, Randy was the one that they molded for all the suits. Oh, that's great. So it wasn't even, they weren't made for each actor. <laughs> oh, no. They never would do that for a low budget. Usually, yeah. even on the yeah. high budget stuff that we do now, they'll usually they'll mold the one actor who's going to be the main one, and then any others have to match that. Like when I was telling you about that Westworld job I did, we molded an actor who's very thin and tall. He's like 6'4 and probably 150, 140. And there was just nobody else who could fit um, in that suit. So we had to alter the suits for a bunch of other skinny guys we got. And then one guy had to back out. And that's why I ended up wearing the suit. And I was just barely thin enough to get into it. And I had to expand the arms and the wrists just to fit in it. <laughs> because it's it, crazy. There's rarely enough budget to make a custom suit for every actor. Right. It sounded like on this one they were right on the edge of the budget the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, and uh timing-wise too, they were on a crunch up till the very end. And I think they I think they did something like 15 minion suits. Yeah. And uh then they, you know, they had a lot of uh uh blue screen stuff so that they were able to add oh, them together when there's a bunch of them yeah it's composite yeah exactly I yeah they had cool made scene a couple of animatronic heads that were malfunctioning on set so they decided not to use them and that's why so many of the all of their heads just have that one expression <laughs> that's funny well and they had different like little rubber guys that they would use and oh, uh terrific shot i wanted to talk to you about where yeah it's all it seems seamless but the kids are downstairs and they look up and there's one of the little puppet ones and he's got his hands like on the bars of the railing of the stairs oh yeah and it's clearly the miniature puppet and then they do a super fast zoom up to it mm -hmm. and right in the middle of that zoom they hide a cut that you barely notice. So by the time they get to the end of the zoom, it's the full size giant oversized set and it's the guys in the suits. Nice. And the transition is is almost seamless though you wouldn't notice it otherwise. Yeah, I didn't notice that. I I remember that shot. Um cuz it's like a, what do they what do they call that kind of zoom? Like a crash close up or something like that. Yeah. I don't remember. Something like that. But yeah. Super fast zoom, but <laughs> it was a, a really a good way to to sell the uh, effect to transition from a miniature to a bigature or whatever you call it uh, with a fast zoom, and it and it works. Yeah. It's really great. Yeah, that's a good good lesson. Uh, there's so many little tricks in there for cutting between different styles like with the miniature to actual actors in a suit yeah it's pretty cool 
Now, one thing we skipped over is a couple of other cool special effects. And one is the hands yeah. that reach out from under the bed and grab the ankles of the kids. Yeah, that's the very first real like monsters that we see. Yeah, and they look pretty good. They're just monster gloves, typical. They're sculpted. They're probably foam rubber. Mm -hmm. But then there's a long one. Extra like, long. Yeah. And that that's kind of like a little jump scare. Because you don't expect... You expect once you get six feet away from the bed, the hands aren't going to get you anymore. And then you right. find that's not true. Some and demon then, hands. What happens? They like... They turn into the demons... And then one of them gets slammed in the door and it collapses into like a bunch of little flesh droplets that kind of look like sperm yeah. that wiggle right. back under the door. And right. there's and that stop was, and it, it, that was a, a fun little transition. Yeah, I thought that they kind of look like maggots. Yeah. Wormy. Yeah, that was sure. that was a very memorable scene. And I don't know if it was before or after that that the walls start moving. There's shapes behind the walls, like pushing on the wall. Yeah, that was a weird effect, too, because you couldn't quite tell what that texture was. Yeah, it almost looked like rocks or lizard skin being pushed against it. But I'm pretty sure all they did for that was just make the walls out of white spandex. Right. Yeah, Pretty and then just push effect, on the others. It, it looks great. Great practical, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Let's see. I think we skipped over the phone too. So oh, they the were the phone is great. And I yeah. think they did that just the same way you would uh in Indiana Jones when you had to melt somebody's face off. Oh yeah. And they make <laughs> so it like... in it's made out of wax and they use these crazy um butane giant butane or propane torches that almost look like a afterburner of a jet and they just put it oh. right up against the thing and they switch it on and it it's like there's no flame in the shot it's just like a heat gun with a supercharger on it and that's what how they did a lot of melting heads in the 80s um they did it throwing in, a lot of heat at it yeah and it's just wax now that looked like they may have like had the wall on the ground because the the way it melted was like it went up and down. So yeah, they it filmed it from above. Flat on the ground. Yeah, that was a cool effect. What what was it? You've you've been bad. Oh, the on, voice. On the... Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was that. Oh yeah, that. The there's right a... before that though. There was also the head squish. Where. Head squish. The mom and dad come home and like, oh, yeah. we're saved. And it's not and mom and dad. Yeah. Glenn, Glenn uh, reaches up and mashes his hands into his dad's face and his head falls off oh, yeah. and hits the ground. It just melts into goo. That was a really fun, gross effect. That was, yeah, that was pretty brutal. Yeah. It's like once you start getting into the effects, it's just like one one after the next. One after another, yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. Uh, let's see. Yeah, so we were we we went into the minions down the hole, and so they were when when uh, 
Terry fell into the hole, that was that was all done in the studio and shot on the uh, horizontal. So he was actually like just crawling on his stomach to kind of climb out. Yeah. So a little more more trickery to think about in terms of how do you how do you pull that off? And they when he was falling, that was just sped up. But again, like on the horizontal. Yeah. Um, it's like when Batman and Robin used to climb up the side of the building. Yeah. <laughs> Turn the camera. <laughs> yep. And it works. Little tricks. It was, I think Spider-Man, the old Spider-Man show that nobody knows about is very similar. Yeah. Well, earlier in the movie, before all the bad stuff happened, Glenn didn't want his parents to go and... One of the reasons he was freaked out is because Terry had told him a ghost story about a workman who had died while they were building their house and the other workman had buried his corpse in the walls of the house. Right. And of course that's that's not true, but yet the demons take advantage of this knowledge and make it true. And then yes. we get another very cool effect and cool character. Yeah, so they, they think that they've sealed up the gate, right, at this point? I believe so. And they're, and they're just chilling. They're, like, talking about how they, much money they can get for the geode. They're going back to the geode sales. I think, oh, yeah, uh, Glenn tosses the geode at Terry, and he fumbles it, and then the work workman pops out of the wall. He bursts through the wall. And this is where the little puff of smoke comes out of his mouth. And it was just cigarette smoke. Yeah, that was such a simple thing. Yeah. But and a and a great effect is to like make him make it feel like he was in there forever and it's just like this dusty breath. Mm-hmm. Pretty And I heard cool. they used to in the old days when they had had a smoking gun, like in an old movie that had just been fired, they would just stick a cigarette down the barrel. That makes sense. That's such an easy way to solve that problem. Yeah. But anyway, Workman is basically a zombie now. And it's a really cool makeup. For sure. I like zombie makeup. And that was a Craig specialty, right? Yes, Craig Craig Reardon's or his shop or whoever would have done that. I should have found out who the actual makeup artist was, but it might have been Craig Reardon. But it's a terrific zombie. He chases him around for a while, and then we have the coolest effect in the movie. They, what do they do? They stun him, throw something at him, and... Oh, they have boombox. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They hit him with a boombox, and he falls to the floor... And turns into a pile of the little demon minions. Yeah, that was that was a great that that took a lot of work too because did you read about another? This? I read all about how they did this. Yeah, well, and this was after so Terry got sucked into the wall by this guy or at this point, and and Glenn had run up to see his sister. Oh right, and, right. And then yeah, so and then the workman pops out of a um, different wall, like a mirror. This was that was a cool effect because you can actually oh, yeah. see into the closet, and because you could like she was looking in the mirror and she kind of like sees this guy and like looks around, 
and then he pops out of the mirror and it's really really like that moment i didn't catch it at first but i went back and watched it again and you can see into the closet and you just see the zombie pop out of the the workman pops out of the mirror yeah yeah, she throws a boombox and he's just like, oh. <laughs> and, and, and then, yeah, falls f- like face flat onto the floor. But in order to pull that off, did you did you have uh, more on how they did this one? Well, it's a giant force perspective, full, full studio set of the bedroom floor and the walls and the dresser. And then they have a miniature that includes the upper half of the dresser, upper half of the door, the wall that the kids are standing against, and a little section of the floor. And they must have been on a platform up in the air because it's a downward-facing shot. Mm -hmm. So that's how they achieved the miniature um, minions in force perspective. But on top of that, they they also had a dummy fall forward and they were messing with all sorts of different frame rates. And then they had a freeze frame of the dummy for several frames when it hits the floor. So they eliminate the bouncing and then they do a jump cut. It's not quite a jump cut. There's like several frames where they've, it's almost like rotoscoped the clothing over the demons and then the last part is that the demons are all the minions are all lined up on the floor in the shape of the body right and they kind of like roll out there's a few transitional frames where with some kind of optical or compositing effect they've put portions of the clothing of the workmen over the top of the minions and they just kind of animate away right yeah, so they had that the dummy of the workman that kind of like fell, so it wasn't the actual actor. Like so initially it was like but they cut the actor pretty early on like he's just barely falling. But then when we see the actual from behind, this is the dummy that's on some sort of stand or something and it's some sort of it, a, so it's a, a rig that let it fall. Yeah, and it just like stops as if it was hitting the floor, but it's like dangling in midair, right? To give yeah, that effect, like it's it's another force perspective. It's in the foreground, in the same part of the set that the kids are on. Yeah, but then they have yeah. to remove the dummy, lock off the cameras, and line up all the minions on the ground in the exact position of the dummy. And then they have this special effect for a few frames to transition it, but it just works perfectly. Yeah. And when you're, if, when you're not paying attention to effects, you never would notice it. But when you know about how effects are done and you know, there was no CGI computers on this movie, you go, Whoa, wait a second. What? Yeah. How did they do that? Yeah. It's pretty serious. And it's, it's being a short cool. schedule too. It's amazing. Yeah. Very cool stuff. And it's, you'd think like if you were working on this movie and you were able to see the dailies, you know, you'd get to see these in real time. Whereas today, if it was CGI, you wouldn't see it until you watched, went into the theater, you know? 
and to yeah. see what they actually put together. It's pretty neat. And I recommend that anybody listening Google or get on YouTube and try to watch some sort of little mini documentary on how force perspective works. And it probably will not have the gate in it, even though it probably should. And yeah. then watch yeah. the gate again. <laughs> and then Google Seriously. behind the scenes photos for the gate. And you'll see some of these double sets that they've built and these miniatures and these oversized sets. It's very impressive. Yeah, so that I I picked up the Blu-ray. The uh, Blu-ray came out just a couple of years ago. It's a collector's edition, and there's a ton of featurettes that cover all of this stuff. I highly recommend that as well. Go go buy it. It's kind of spendy. Yeah. Now, Randall really William cool. Cook actually uh, became the uh, special effects artist on the Lord of the Rings movies that you mentioned, and he was partly responsible for some of those really impressive force perspective shots of the hobbits and the wizards together. I did not know that. And if you watch okay. the behind the scenes on that, they did a, some really cool stuff with, uh, they wanted to do a force perspective dinner table shot where the camera dollied across the room. Hmm. And so they had two sections of table once uh, one oversized, one mini-sized, one for the Hobbit, one for the Wizard. And they lined up the camera so you couldn't see the transition. And then both, they had two sections of floor with this table on it that moved independently so that as the camera dollied across the room, these tables moved away from each other side to side. Mm. So wow. that they, and it was I, I, it may have been a little bit of digital cleanup, but it's mostly a completely practical effect. That's awesome. And that's, adding that's crazy. that motion to the dolly helps sell that it's real. Because usually a forced perspective of a shot has to be locked off camera. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, having all these new tools, um, motion control and whatnot, I imagine they can pull it off a little bit easier if they have the budget to do it. Yeah. It's rare. You don't get to see that very often anymore. Yeah. It's cool stuff, man. And it's just it's like an old school technique. It's been around for a long time. And speaking of old school techniques, stop motion goes back almost to the beginning. And then you have movies like King Kong mm -hmm. and the dinosaur movie. I forget the name of it. There's a dinosaur that attacks New York. But yeah. Any, anything by Ray Harryhausen is amazing. And he was an inspiration to Randy. He was a big Harryhausen fan. And I believe it was Randall who sculpted, or at least oversaw, the creation of the stop-motion Demon Lord, which is the next yeah, in the movie. Definitely. A lot of the miniature sets. And well, part of the plot is that there needs to be two human sacrifices. And one of them is... Is it the sisters? No. Oh, one of no, them so is, is Terry gets taken into the wall. Yep. And then does his big sister get taken? That's right. Yeah. Al gets dragged away by the same workman. Okay. So like now she, he picks her up by the leg and which were some effects too. Like they had like a fake leg and whatnot. But that, that, that scene happens really quickly. 
Yeah. So yeah, they get the two sacrifices and then the gate opens, right? Yeah, and here comes Demon Lord, and this is a stop-motion puppet. We skipped one effect. We'll have to talk about that after, where there's an eyeball on a hand. Oh, yeah. And it's well, that's, really cool. That comes uh, right after the Demon Lord pops up for the first time. Oh, right. So we haven't skipped it yet. The Demon Lord shows up, wreaks havoc, the minions go away, and for whatever reason, instead of destroying Glenn... He sees Glenn as his summoner and says, well, he doesn't speak, but he's like, okay, you're my guy on earth. You're going to be my eyes and ears. And he like brands him on his hand. And when Glenn opens his hand, there's an eyeball there. Yes. So he can keep an eye on Glenn. And he says, I got to go back and do some demon Lord stuff, but I'll be back. <laughs> and he goes That's back right. down. <laughs> yeah yep um and there's also uh right before that i think i think it was when so the gate opens and then you see this like huge like cloud dark oh, cloud yes. swirling I, out of the hole that was some cloud tank work do you know about cloud tanks no mm -mm. oh great well they were a huge hit in the 80s very famous ones in the 80s, especially like in Ghostbusters and The NeverEnding Story. Oh, yeah. But basically what they do is make a huge, super clean aquarium full of water. Uh, it's usually black. Nice. And then they side light it or they put the light wherever they need it to be. And then they inject colored inks into the water. And they film them in all sorts of angles. And then they use... Uh, optical compositing to put these cloud shapes that they create and they'll do like a lot of slow motion with it and they'll composite these things there's a lot of them in the 80s where something shoots out of the top of a house and forms right. a big cloud in the sky above and there's a bunch of colorful lights um, you see it in Ghostbusters you see it in yeah. this one I think maybe Poltergeist has one it was very cool and common effect, but it's all done by shooting colored inks into water. And that's, I well, mean, that's it, what most of it is. There's also shots of like fog and smoke machine stuff and it all gets layered up together. Yeah. And I think this one, they mentioned something about having like a, a tube with cotton. Oh, for like and a they, spinning tornado-y sort of a, Thing. yeah yeah and they did some kind of tracking shot to do that section or something i yeah. don't know i mean there's not a lot of detail around that but uh it, well, by the way interesting to see if you if you haven't seen it in a while watch yeah. a good quality uh version of wizard of oz oh, they yeah. have a miniature tornado puppet in the background of the shots with dorothy that for its time looks phenomenal. Sure. The tornado sequence in the original Wizard of Oz is really well done. Right and on. part That's of it 39. is a tornado puppet in the background. And it's basically a cone of fabric that's got a bunch of stuff attached to it. And it's spinning and dancing around. And it looks awesome. I have to go back and watch that. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. That's a great, great movie. Good one. Yeah. 
lots of cool effects. Great makeups in it too. Oh man, yeah. Pretty early on uh, foam latex usage. I just recently watched uh, Return to Oz, the oh, Walter yeah. Murch. Freaky movie. Good too. one. Yeah, cool effects in that one. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So that's the the demon. The demon lord pops out, gives him the hand, the eye hand, which uh, quickly gets stabbed in the eye, which is another pretty cool effect. Well, he was working on his hand-eye coordination. (laughs) And as an effects artist, I don't know exactly how they did the hand-eye. I can only assume it's a a whole thing is like a, a puppeteered rig. It's a fake hand, fake eye. Um, so they talked about it a little bit. It's actually um, Randall's hand and eye. So and I think it's like... Composite shot then? Uh-huh. Yep. Well, it's it really is. seamlessly done then. Yeah, seriously. And then the hand that gets stabbed was uh, makeup. So fake hand with the sculpted eye and all that good stuff. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the old stabber, stabberoo. That's terrific to do something as simple as just a composite of two up of two film shots and have it work. Right. It's great. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure who pulled that one off or who was in charge of that shot, but uh, it worked really well. It was freaky. Yeah. Very neat. So yeah, the stop motion, the, the demon Lord, do you have, do you have any more details on, on the ins and outs of that guy? Uh, there's a shot. Well, to continue the plot, when he stabs the eye, he knows he's only got a couple minutes before the Demon Lords comes back, and he's got to have a plan f- for defeating it. And I, f- I don't know if he reads in the book or something about he needs the light. He needs to fight it with the light of hope or love, goodness. Or love and light. Love and light. So he, he and light. decides very astutely that the rocket ship represents his love to his sister. So he gets the big rocket and he gets his electrical launcher and he shoots a rocket into the demon soon after he arrives. But before that, the demon grabs him and shakes him around and they have a fight. And that's a little stop motion puppet of the kid. Oh yeah. And And that was good. Flings him. And I guess he lands in the room and that's when he sees the rocket. And when he shoots the rocket at the demon, apparently they made like a flap of the demon's skin in rubber to animate that little insert shot of the rocket going into the demon's skin. That was cool. I like that part. Even though it looked a little cheesy, I thought it was really neat. (laughs) Yeah, I liked it too. Just goes right in him. He does he explode? He's like kind of dancing around and he starts lighting up like he just starts turning into light in the in the center until he yeah. until he explodes yeah uh he's kind of writhing around for a while but what did he say what was what was the one line that uh glenn yelled out happy birthday al oh i was way off <laughs> that's all it was like, yeah he that says happy birthday to his sister that fills the rocket with love and light yeah <laughs> and boom he takes care of business the whole house That's is destroyed 
right? Oh, well, almost. I mean, shot we forgot to mention where Terry becomes his own zombie and he's in the closet and attacks them. Uh, oh, and they yeah. stab him in the eye. Right. There's two that was freaky. Coming. That was probably the freakiest part of of the movie because yeah. of the eye stabbing. And you don't want Terry to be a monster. No. But that was just a makeup and, and a an edit. Right. But then I don't that was, remember. That was freaky, how... though, because he was like biting his hand. Like, Oh, yeah. He, he was like. Him. And he had, looked like he had fake teeth, like extra long fake teeth to make yeah, that happen. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, did they come back at the end? Do they just walk through the door or something? They pop out of the coat closet. Oh, right. So first, okay. first uh, Angus, the dog, comes running out, which is amazing because he was dead like three times over, it felt like. Yeah, and buried in the in the hole. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but then, yeah, and then it was uh, Sister and Terry pop out too, and sky skies clear up, and uh, it's happy happy ending, right? They're going to have a lot of explaining to the mom and dad. Al's going to be so disappointed in herself because she was supposed to control things. But all they right. they have to say is, oh, a gas line exploded and we're lucky to be alive. And why'd you leave two children alone for the weekend? <laughs> this is your fault, mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, luckily we don't have to see that part. That's Did they address that in part two? I don't remember, but I I have heard from a friend that number two has some of the best special effects of all time. So maybe we should watch it and mm. oh. just check in with each other and say, "Hey, did you see that? Did you see that?" <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I, man, this movie again. Like I remember seeing it on the video shelf at the gas station when I was a kid, <laughs> yeah. and and I was never allowed to to watch any scary movies. So it, it just kind of went under my radar forever. So thanks thanks for turning me on to it, man. It's a really good movie. I similarly didn't watch a lot of scary movies as a kid, mostly because I kind of had been traumatized too young by a few things. And so I didn't watch this movie until I had already started doing effects makeup and someone was talking about it. And they were like, oh, you got to see The Gate. And we watched it and he told me all about how they did various effects and Heck Very yeah. cool. So it, it, what would you call your favorite scene in the movie? Well, the favorite the effect game. is, of course, the guy falling down and and exploding into a bunch of minions. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was that was amazing. I mean, it's, it's so seamless. Yeah. One of my favorite like, scenes, just for charm's sake, is when Terry's alone in his house. His dad has, is not home. His mom has died. He's probably 12 or 13 and he's completely by himself. And you can tell he's transitioning into being a metalhead, but he's still got his, his room is like heavy metal posters on the wall, but he's got the rainbow bed sheets. And, and you can <laughs> see that he's still a child. He's got a dorky haircut. He's got dorky glasses and he's trying to become a metalhead, but he is not, he's not cool yet. Right. But I just love how he puts on the record and he puts the rainbow sheets over his head like a wizard's cloak. And he's <laughs> lip syncing along to the story of the the demons and the 
devil and right and i love that he's just completely unsupervised and he's just having fun by himself listening to music and then he has his epiphany wait a second right it sounds exactly. like what's happening next door so he gets the instructions yeah they solve the mystery but i think he's it's just like it's a kind of a cute moment because before that you're kind of like this kid's a little bit of a prick and even Glenn's dad says, you know, ever since Terry's mom died, he's he's just angry at everything, so give him a break. Right. Yeah, we learned a lot about Terry. Who is that? So the writer, he based it on his true childhood friend, also named Terry. Oh. And apparent, apparently the workman story was the story that his friend Terry told him it was the first thing that his friend told him when he first moved into his house. Did you know you've got a workman, <laughs> dead workman in your wall? <laughs> oh, geez. So yeah, there's a pretty personal story that uh, Michael, was it Michael Nankin? Uh, put into this script. Wow. Yeah. So do we miss anything? Probably. <laughs> yeah i think that's pretty good coverage though it's, this is a great movie go go watch the movie if you haven't seen it hopefully you've seen it already and and uh, wanted some insight into these really cool effects uh yeah. yeah so one one last thing that i usually do is ask for a movie recommendation is there another movie that uh related or unrelated that you might recommend to listeners oh gosh Take your time. A lot of people don't know Planet of the Vampires. Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires is my favorite science fiction film, aside from Forbidden Planet. It's got the nice. coolest spacesuits ever made, and it's very clearly one of the two movies that inspired the movie Alien, Ridley Scott's movie. Um, when you see certain shots from Planet of the Vampires, you go, Wow, that's exactly the same as Alien. The plot is very similar to Alien, although it's more of a space zombie plot. I don't even know why they called them vampires. There must have been some translation issues. Uh, <laughs> it was made in Italy, but it's English language, but you can tell they didn't record sound, which uh, Hong Kong used to do that a lot too. It's just so much faster to record to make a movie without recording. So it's English dubbed over English speaking actors, but occasionally you can tell they did a rewrite and the, the lips will be in sync for one sentence and the next sentence, it'll be just completely different. There's amazing hairstyles, amazing voices, really funny. Um, it's not like funny, bad, but it's just so dated that you laugh at some of the dialogue and some of the plot and the sets. Awesome. But at the same time, it's some of the most beautiful and stylish and colorful uh, science fiction that you can watch. And it's from 1965. So it's very, it's very 1965. <laughs> you know, imagine if the original Star Trek had been darker and scarier and cooler but just as flashy and colorful. Cool. 
Yeah. That's I've, I've seen, I've looked at that movie uh, a couple of times. I haven't seen it though. So I definitely have to bump it up on my, that list of mine. I think you awesome. should yeah, put it on there and, and do a little read up about it, how it inspired alien. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, Forbidden planet is one of my top science fiction films. I love that movie. That one's got so, some great force perspective shots in it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think about that for sure. It's like the UFO and uh, monster stuff. Yeah. But then also when they go inside the structure of the yeah. underground city, they're walking across some platforms and all around them are these giant machines that are working and it's all just forced perspective. Cool. Well, thanks, Jesse. Really appreciate you coming on. It's been a lot of fun. It was my pleasure. Good episode. Heck yeah. Thanks for being on Film Church, Jesse. That was a hell of a time. I sure hope the sinkhole in my backyard doesn't require the same treatment. You know, sinkholes, you ever see one? I got one. Get ready for another episode with Jesse someday in the future. I, I kind of talked about it a little bit. I believe we will be performing a movie autopsy on Night of the Creeps next time we meet up. Uh, this movie will take you back to 1986 by means of a little bit of horror and a bit of science fiction. Not sure when, but uh, if you like campy horror comedies, watch it and be ready for the next meeting with Jesse. Got a question or a statement? Send me an email at filmchurch@aol.com and go to Film Church to subscribe to Film Church on your favorite podcast service or check out another episode. Got some stuff there. There's more to explore on the website. Send me some ideas about movies I should cover or tell me what I'm doing wrong. I don't know. So, yeah, coming up uh, coming up next is kind of up in the air right now. It might be my brother and Darkstar from 1974. Or it might be Maddox and the original Karate Kid with Ralph Macchio. That's it, folks. 